Well, today is April 5, 2021. It's also day eight of the Derek Chauvin trial. Uh, Chauvin, of course, is the police officer who's being charged with the murder of George Floyd. After handcuffing Floyd on May 25, 2020, uh, Chauvin knelt on Floyd's neck for nine minutes and 29 seconds. Before he lost consciousness, George Floyd, uh, George Floyd muttered, I can't breathe multiple times. He cried out for his mom and he begged for his life. Now, in the days following Floyd's murder, protested, or protests erupted in Minneapolis and around the country. People taking to the street shouting, I can't breathe, Black Lives Matter, and no justice, no peace. Well, in these protests, we hear an echo of the saints in Revelation 6. O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long must we suffer injustice? How long before you judge and avenge our blood on the earth? There's a right realization in these protests and in these cries that until there is justice, there will never be a true and abiding peace here on earth. So long as people commit murder and get away with it, so long as children live in fear of being abducted, so long as folks live in fear of being shot up in school or in the supermarket, so long as women fear being raped, so long as people can cheat the system while others starve to get ahead, so long as people are terrorized because of their race, gender, sexuality, or creed, so long as all of this is permitted and goes unpunished, we're never going to have a true abiding peace. So how long, O oh Lord, before you bring justice here on earth? How much longer do we have to wait? What the opening of the sixth and seventh seals reveal in the book of Revelation is what we see at the very end of this book. Our waiting will not go on forever. A day of judgment which is to say a day of justice, is coming. Someday the number of saints will be complete. And God is going to intervene one last time to put sin, evil, and injustice to death once and for all. This is where history is heading. It is not heading for a dead end. We're not trapped in some cosmic wheel of suffering that goes around in circles forever and ever. It's heading somewhere. A day of justice, a day of judgment is coming. And I know for many, particularly in our modern Western world, talk of God's wrath or judgment sounds dreadful and old-fashioned. But for most humans around the world, people present and people past, talk of God's justice is something that's not to be feared. It's something to be looked forward to. It's something that they long for. It's celebrated. It's hailed as a great day. Because judgment's bad news to oppressors, but it is really good news to the oppressed. It's good news. One of my favorite TV shows of all time is the show Breaking Bad. There was a three-month stretch in 2014 when I was watching Breaking Bad just about any chance that I could get. I would binge several episodes before bed, Megan would be asleep, and so I'd be sort of in the dark watching it. It made me feel kind of icky, right? Like, I know these secrets. I've done these things, right? Like, I've seen too much, right? So I was watching it before, binging it before bed. I was doing a, um, 
a like learn to play hockey class through like the PE department here at UVM. There's stories I could tell you. I was watching it in between practices. I was watching it on at the gym. I mean, I was hooked on the show. As I was watching it, I stumbled upon an NPR interview with Vince Gilligan, who was the creator or writer of the show. And in the interview, Gilligan reveals some things that I didn't know about him. And he, he says some things that are actually pretty shocking and, and I think hopeful. He reveals that he was raised Catholic, but is an agnostic at this point in his life. But in these interviews, and it's not just this one interview he did for NPR. He also shares as much uh, in sort of like a New York Times interview as well. You hear him really longing for God's existence, that he really wants it to be true that there is a God. But he comes at this in a way that I've never heard before. He says, I can stand the thought that there is no heaven, but I cannot stand the thought that there is no hell. Because, you know, where's Hitler then? And where's Pol Pot? He says, there's got to be some kind of payback. What he's driving is this, if there's no God, there's no judge. And if there's no judge, there's no justice. No God means no heaven, no hell, means no peace and no justice. It means you can do terrible, horrible things and and get away with it if there's no God. And this is the thought that keeps Vince Gilligan awake at night. What he says, like, that galls him to no end. He says... I've got to believe that there's a hell because I cannot stand the thought of a brutal dictator like Idi Amin spending the last 25 years of his life in some plush Saudi Arabia hotel. That galls me to no end. And I think it's really important that we hear what Gilligan is saying. And I think it's powerful all the more because he's saying it as a non-Christian. He's saying, the, though the thought of hell is terrifying and awful, the thought of there not being one is actually worse. It's actually worse. Because no hell means no justice. It means you can live like Hitler or Mother Teresa, and it makes no difference in the end. Which is why Vince Gilligan makes a show like Breaking Bad. He wants to live in a world where actions do have real-life consequences. Where what you do actually matters. Right, deep down inside, he wants hell to exist, and you and I do too, actually. You just don't want to go there. And thanks to Jesus, you don't have to. You want there to be a hell, you just don't want to go there. And thanks to Jesus, you don't have to. Since becoming a pastor at UVM, I've met lots of folks who've told me that they aren't interested in organized religion, but they are interested in the person of Jesus and what he has to say. Well, they need to know as much as you need to know that Jesus talks about hell more than anybody else in the Bible. He talks about it so much because he cares about you so much. I used this quote and illustration last semester, but I think it's worth repeating here. Penn Jillette is the famous comedian and magician of the Penn and Teller show, and he also happens to be a fairly outspoken atheist. And I think like, just like Vince Gilligan, he has an important perspective that all of us need to hear. He says, and I quote, I don't have any respect for people who don't proselytize. Like, no respect at all. 
If you believe there's a heaven and hell, and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life, and you think that's not worth telling somebody because it would make things socially awkward, like how much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them? I mean, if I believed beyond the shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe that truck was bearing down on me, there's a certain point at which I tackle you. And this is more important than that. This is more important than that. Jesus talks about hell a lot because he cares about you a lot. You can think of this revelation as him tackling you. He's tackling you and he's telling you hell is for real. It's a real place. It's a real place and it really sucks, to put it mildly. In this passage we're looking at tonight, hell is described as a second death and a lake of fire burning with fire and sulfur. Now, as we've seen all semester long, this language is most likely symbolic and not literal. But just because it's symbolic doesn't make it untrue or unreal. It's just that these signs or symbols are revealing something that is hard to even put into words. That hell is a very real, dark, and painful place. It's sad. It stinks like rotten eggs. Right? It's no good. And it grieves God's heart. He hates it. And he doesn't want anyone to go there. That's why he sends his son in the first place. In Second Peter we read, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But if this is true, that God hates hell and is willing to go to such great lengths to keep people out of it. Why does it exist at all? And here comes the shocking answer. Hell exists because people choose it. God hates it, but people choose it. And people choose it all the time. And it's not for a lack of knowledge. People the whole world over know that there's a God. They know that he's good. Their conscience tells them that they're supposed to be good too, and they're not. They long for justice, and they know that they themselves need mercy. And God is merciful. He's given us incredible gift in the person of Jesus, a gift that we receive for free, though he's paid for it. And it's a gift that we receive not because we're good, but simply because we're needy. And people can know all of this and still reject him, still want nothing to do with him. They still choose life apart from him and to do life on their own terms. Now, of course, this is sad and this is tragic. It's tragic because it doesn't have to be this way. And you might be asking, why? Why do people still choose this? But instead of making that some sort of abstract philosophical question, why not make it personal? Why might you choose that? Or why are you choosing that right now? What are you choosing? What do you really want? 
C.S. Lewis said that there really are only two kinds of people in the world. Those who say to God, thy will be done or my will be done. Those who say my will be done want nothing more than to be lords of their own life, subject to no one. They want nothing to do with God. They want nothing to do with his grace. They want to be in control. They want to be left alone. They want to do what they want to do and live life on their own terms. And hell really is that decision writ forever. Hell is God giving them what they want. To those who say, leave me alone, I want nothing to do with you, the worst thing that God could say is, you can have what you wish. I'm not going to bother you anymore. Hell is that forever. Thy will be done, or my will be done. This is why, again, in the words of C.S. Lewis, he says, the gates of hell are locked on the inside. That's the tragedy. The gates of hell are locked on the inside, not the out. Day of justice is coming. Hell is for real. You don't want to go there. And thanks to Jesus, you don't have to. But this passage raises this question. If there is a day of justice, how do I stand? We hear of this book of life. How can I be sure that my name is written in it? Can I have any assurance that my name is written in it? And that's where I really want to land this message tonight. Right? We want there to be a day of reckoning. We want everything wrong to be set to rights. We want evil to be exposed as evil and to be banished forever. Like Vince Gilligan, we want there to be a hell. We just don't want to go there ourselves. At least I'm going to assume that's the case. I'm going to assume that when you read and you hear about this book of life in verses 12 and 15, you are hoping that your name is written in it. I'm assuming that. Knowing that there is a book of life, how can I be sure that my name is written in it? Can I have any assurance that I'm going to go to heaven? And the revelation says, yes, there is. Right? There are three sort of clues or proofs or signs that your name is in the book of life. If your answer to these next three questions is yes, you can be sure that your name is written there. The first clue, the first question is this. Are you covered? Are you covered? As I mentioned somewhat in passing, our passage tonight really is a retelling of what happens when God opens the six and seven seals on the scroll that we learned about several weeks back in Revelation 5. If you recall, God has a plan. He's got a blueprint to make everything wrong right again. There's a scroll with seven seals. When the first four seals are opened, it's disclosed that our world is full of conquest, war, famine, disease, and will be until Jesus returns. The fifth seal is opened, and we hear these cries from the saints. How long? Like, what are you waiting for until you bring justice here on earth? God answers, the number of saints is not yet complete. But there, that leaves two seals left on the scroll, seal six and seven. And when these get opened up, what we see is this day of judgment and the dawn of the new heavens and new earth. Now, we didn't print those passages for you uh, in your bulletin tonight, but if you go back and you read what happens when the six and seven seals are opened up, the language and the imagery is nearly identical to what we have here uh, in, uh, in our passage. When the sixth seal is opened, the skies rolled back, 
There's no place to hide. And folks are saying to the mountains, fall on us and hide us from him who's seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of the wrath has come. And who can stand? That's the question. Who can stand this day of judgment? But we get an answer to that question almost immediately. Because what John sees next is a huge crowd of people, too many to be counted, and they're coming from all over the world. People from every tribe, uh, from every people group, from every nation. I mean, it's an incredibly multi-ethnic, multinational, diverse crowd, and they're all dressed in white. And somebody comes up to John and he says, who are these robed in white? He says, you know. And he says, these are those who've passed through the judgment and they've come out on the other side. They have washed the robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Here's the point. On Judgment Day, everyone's going to hide behind something or someone. Some are going to hide behind their wealth. They say, I'm okay with God because I've got lots of money. Or I'm okay because I gave a lot of my money away. Some are going to hide behind their nationality. Like, I'm good because I'm an American. Some are going to hide behind their education or their upbringing. Like, I'm good, I'm okay because my parents took me to church when I was a kid. Or I'm good, I'm okay because I'm woke. Some are going to try to hide behind their politics. I'm okay because I voted for Trump. Or I'm okay because I voted for Biden. Or I'm okay because I'm a conservative. Or I'm okay because I'm a progressive. Right? Some are going to try to hide behind their resume. I'm okay because I'm a doctor. I'm a nurse. I'm a teacher. I'm a generally good person. On Judgment Day, folks are going to try to hide behind lots of different things. But none of those things that I've just mentioned have got you covered. None of those things are going to work. But there's one thing that will. There's one thing that will actually shield you and save you on the Day of Judgment. It's it's the blood of Jesus. It's the blood of Jesus. The ones who are standing, right? the ones whose name is in the book of life, They are not perfect people. They are imperfect people who have found a perfect Savior. They have taken their dirty, messed up lives and they've washed them in the blood of the Lamb. The reason that you or I will be able to stand on the day of judgment is not because you haven't sinned. right? You have. I have too. It's not because you've lived a perfect life. You haven't, nor have I. The reason that you or I can stand is because a perfect Savior has paid a debt that you and I owe. He died so that you can live. His blood was, set, was shed so that God can pass over you on the day of his wrath. The question is, are you covered in the blood of the Lamb? God has given you, as it were, a get-out-of-jail-free card. Are you going to use it? Are you covered? This is the first sort of clue if you're, uh, that your name is in the book of life, that you've, you've staked your security in Jesus. You've put your faith and trust in him. You're like, his death is mine. Like, God has punished my sins in him. I need him. I'm laying claim to him. Like, if that's true of you, if you've made that confession, if that's... Your name is in the book of life. But secondly, your name is written in the book of life if you are thirsty. If you're thirsty. Look at 
Revelation 21.6. Jesus says, To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Are you covered? Are you thirsty? In the Old Testament book, Jeremiah, God says, My people have done two evil things. They've abandoned me, the fountain of living water. And they've dug for themselves cracked cisterns that can hold no water at all. They've abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and they're trying to catch water in broken cisterns that can hold no water at all. We have, as it were, this God-sized hole in our heart, and we're now trying to stuff that hole with all kinds of things. Money, sex, power, success, anything to fill that, that void. And anything to cover up what's now actually missing. And it doesn't work. It makes us thirsty. Are you longing for something better? Being thirsty is not just a matter of longing for something that will truly satisfy. It also means coming to the end of yourself. Because thirsty people realize that they need something outside of themselves to give them life, right? Swallowing spit just isn't cutting it anymore, right? It's not like, oh, that's refreshing. Like, thirsty people realize, like, there's something out there that I need to give my life life and refreshment. Have you come to that realization? Are you thirsty? You know, we sometimes sing in RUF a song that goes like this. Are you hurting and broken within? Overwhelmed by the weight of your sin, Jesus is calling. Have you come to the end of yourself? Do you thirst for a drink from the well? Jesus is calling. In the Gospel of John, Jesus passes through a town in Samaria, and there he meets a woman whose life is all kinds of messed up. Her life is one broken relationship after another. She's had five husbands, and she's presently shacking up with another man who isn't her husband. Jesus knows all of this. He knows her sin. He knows her guilt. He knows her shame. He sees the holes in her heart, and he sees the ways that she's trying to fill them up. The reason why Jesus is like, I've got to pass through Samaria is not so that he can judge her. The reason Jesus says, I've got to pass through Samaria, there's somebody that I've got to meet, is so that he can save her. Her thirsty life doesn't disqualify her from grace. On the contrary, it makes her ready to receive it. When we come to grip, uh, when we come to grips with our lack, when we come to the end of ourselves, we start looking beyond ourselves for help and for rescue. And God will not disappoint. He says, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Incline your ear, come to me, hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Jesus says to the woman at the well and to you and me too, everyone who drinks of this water, like in this well is going to be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him or I give her will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him, her, will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. I can satisfy your thirsty soul, 
he is saying. Paradoxically, hungry, thirsty people discover that their lives are in the book of life. Not because they have it all together, but precisely because they don't. That's the paradox. Their name is in that book of life, not because they've got it all together. It's because they realize they don't. As I said, they stop swallowing their spit and saying it's okay. And what they've started to do is swallowing their pride. They know they need something, someone outside themselves to give them life. They're in touch with their neediness. And this is an easy, hard thing to do. It's easy because all you need is nothing, right? All you need is need. But that's a hard thing to come to grips with. Because as soon as you admit that, you realize, look, I'm no better than anybody else. I'm a thirsty person. (laughs) That levels the playing field. And for many, that's just a bridge too far. But for those who are willing to cross this bridge, for those who are willing to come to God empty-handed, knowing their lack, knowing their need, God says, I will not disappoint you. You might come to me empty-handed, but you are not going to stay that way. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, Jesus says, for you will be satisfied. You will be satisfied. The question we're asking at the end of this passage is, can I have assurance that my name is written in the book of life? And the revelation answers affirmatively, yes. Are you covered? Are you thirsty? And finally, are you fighting? Are you covered? Are you thirsty? Are you fighting? Look at Revelation 21, 7. It says, The one who conquers will have this inheritance, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Now, the verb that gets translated conquers is actually a present active participle. For you grammar geeks out there, I am one. But for you grammar geeks out there, what this present active participle means, or what it describes, is actually ongoing action. So a better translation would read, to the one who is conquering. Not to the one who conquers, but to the one who's conquering. Or to the one who's fighting and fights to the end. To him, to her, I will be their God, and they will be like my son. I think it's a huge, actually, I mean, I think it's a really important distinction. The Christian life is hard. It's described often as a war. And many of you have discovered that it is actually harder now, now that you've started following Jesus. Like following Jesus didn't make that war any easier. It's, It's made it more intense. Once upon a time, you did some things without a second's thought, but now there's tension. Now there's struggle. Now you feel this war inside of you. And just getting, just hooking up or just getting laid, like, yeah, laid with a stranger or laid with your boyfriend or girlfriend or getting wasted or cheating on exam or doing any number of things, right? Lying to your parents. Like, once upon a time, that was just whatever. But now, that, now that Jesus is in your life, you're like, I don't feel so good about those things. It's hard. There's war. It's not just you now living in a single. Now you've got a roommate. It's you and the Holy Spirit too in there. And as it goes with roommates, right, there can be conflict, right? There's tension. 
Paul describes this as a war between the old self and the new. He writes, For I delight in the law of God and my inner being, but there is another power within me that's at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to sin that is still within me. And yet, he keeps fighting. Uh, in a letter that he wrote to a church, he writes, by, now, by no means have I obtained perfection, but I'm pressing toward that goal because Jesus has called me as his own, and he's calling me towards this finish line. So forgetting the past, for, forgetting like all of my mistakes that exist in the past, I'm looking forward to what lies ahead. And I press on to reach the end of this race and to receive the prize which God through Jesus Christ, is calling me and calling us to. That's Philippians 3. Those, here's the point. Those whose name is recorded in the book of life, they are not perfect people, but they are works in process. They are not perfect, but they are fighting a good fight. They are now in a war, and they're, uh, and they're fighting their sin. When their sin gets exposed to them, they're repenting of it. When they discover that they're off course, they're eager to get back on the right track. They're not doing this perfectly, but they're trying. They're fighting. They haven't conquered, but they're conquering. Right? They're working at it. I've been following Jesus for 13 years. When I met Jesus 13 years ago, I was a burned-out Buddhist who had converted to atheism. I was mired in sexual sin. I had a drinking problem. I didn't really know how to make friends or how to be a friend. I was addicted to other people's approval, and I sought to win people's affection through my performance. Am I where, like today, am I where I was 13 years ago? Thanks be to God, the answer is no. But that doesn't mean that I've conquered or that I've made it. I'm conquering. I still have to fight. It's a war now for me. I have to be careful about what I drink and how much. I'm really grateful for things like covenant eyes and porn blocking software. I'm blessed to have many good friends now, but I'm still learning how to be a good friend. I'm learning how to trust people. I'm still learning how to be vulnerable and let my guard down. I'm learning how to live in community. I'm learning how to repent of my idols, of approval and performance. I'm learning how to trust that because of Jesus, I really am okay. Again, I'm not where I was 10, 13 years ago. But it's also true that where I'm today is not where I'm going to be 13 years from now. Thanks be to God, right? The sign of the fight is a sign of life. And it's a sign that your name is in the book of life. It's not have you conquered, it's are you conquering. The mark of the Christian life is not perfection, but it is repentance and faith. So friends, are you in the fight? Are you running the race? To the one who keeps conquering, to say who keeps going, who keeps fighting day after day, you will have this heritage. Jesus says, I will be your God. 
And you will be my son. You'll be my daughter. A day of justice is coming. Like it or not, a day of justice is coming. And God wants you to stand. This is why he's given us his son. It's why he's given us this revelation. In so many words, we all deserve hell. But Jesus experienced hell, so we don't have to. Heaven is not full of perfect people, but it is full of those who recognize their need for a perfect Savior. RUF is here on this campus to introduce you to that one. He's got you covered. He satisfies your thirsty soul. And friends, he really is worth fighting for. Let's pray.